Thank you, folks, for leading us in singing this morning. Special thanks to Jeff. I know he's not feeling well today and yet has come and provided the leadership that we so desperately need. Appreciate it so much. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. You've probably seen the bumper sticker. But how sad is that? Apparently, there is a lot of truth in that statement. In fact, early in January of this year, the Financial Post included an article titled, Saddled with Huge Levels of Debt, Canadians Remain Fearful a Recession is Looming. The implication is that many Canadians are living from paycheck to paycheck. Listen to this quote from the article. Saddled with some of the highest household debt levels in the world, Canadians have already slowed their spending to the weakest in at least half a century, in part because they are saving more to brace for a potential hit. That was written in early January of this year. Too little, too late? Well, I guess only time will tell. But in the meantime, we owe, we owe, so off to work we go. That is the reality for many Canadians. Another bumper sticker reads, He who dies with the most toys wins. So the implication is that to be a winner, the purpose in life is to accumulate as, as much stuff as we possibly can. And then there's also the saying, some people work to live and others live to work. So those who work to live view their work or careers as a means of earning enough money to support themselves and any dependents that they may have so that they're able to do the things that they really enjoy doing. For these people, work becomes a means to an end. And then on the other hand, those who live to work are consumed with the, their work or careers. Achievement, recognition, words of affirmation at work are a major source of satisfaction and adds meaning to their lives. Beloved, what are we doing? What's the advantage of all our toiling, all our work under the sun? If you're able, please stand with me and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'd like to read from God's Word this morning, beginning at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and read through to the end of verse 11. So beginning at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind, wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a good thing it's sunny outside because it feels a little gloomy inside after that reading. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this divine disclosure. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Not only was it inspired, but you've ensured that it's been preserved for our benefit. Teach us so that we may know the right path. Reprove those who have gone astray. Correct those who need to get back on the right path. And train us in righteousness so that we are able to live in ways that please and honor you. As we study Solomon's assessment of life under the sun, May we be better prepared to embrace his conclusion. Fear God, to keep his commandments, and to trust his coming judgment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Life in the Mist. That's the title of the new series we're going to be looking at as we make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes over the next few months. Last week we were introduced to, number one, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon. Secondly, his leading premise found at the very beginning of the book. And then thirdly, his definitive conclusion that's found at the very end of the book. Let's turn there for a moment. Ecclesiastes, just keep your finger in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, but flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I think it's absolutely essential that as we study this book that we keep the conclusion in the forefront of our mind or we are going to end up in, in one of those two ditches 
Remember, narcissism on this one side or skepticism on the other. And we want to be able to run down the middle of the road with the preacher or King Solomon. So look at the conclusion beginning at verse 13. This is after he's done the assessment of life under the sun. He says, in conclusion, when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's why I prayed what I prayed at the beginning. That we would fear God, keep his commandments, and then trust in his coming judgment as we live life in the mist. Edie asked me, she's not here this morning, but she asked on Tuesday night prayer meeting, how in the world did the wisest man who ever existed end up with 700 wives and 300 concubines? It's a good question. And I think the answer to that question actually prompted the writing of the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, God had published his warning for future kings of Israel way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Listen as I read some excerpts from verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 17. Moreover, he, that is the future king, will not multiply horses for himself. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. King Solomon was guilty on all three counts later in his life. Rather than heed the warning, Solomon allowed the world to squeeze him into its mold. He chose exactly what the pagan kings that surround the nation of Israel were doing. Multiplying horses, multiplying wives, and stockpiling gold and silver. The result? Well, years later, when the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah is prophesying. He actually names King Solomon as someone who, you, who, as an example, you should not follow. Here are his exact words. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? There was no king from any nation who could compare to him. And God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. It appears that Solomon is now in the twilight years of his life. When he sits down to write the book of Ecclesiastes, he's looking in the rearview mirror, back over his shoulder, reflecting on life in the mist, with a desire 
to help those who are coming behind him so that they might avoid the same mistakes, making the same mistakes that he has made while living under the sun. Following his lead premise, vanity of vanities, all is vanities, following that, in verse 2, the preacher asks this question. Look at it with me. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Or sorry, verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? And for Dan's benefit, according to the ESV version, what does man gain? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That happens to be a better translation on this rare occasion. Dan and I had this thing going on about... Uh, translation so but the preacher wants us to ponder this question to think about it to sit with it so let's take a look, closer look at it the hebrew word translated advantage in my new american standard bible is that word which would have been used been very common in the business world in the world of budgets and balance sheets Profits and losses, purchases and expenditures, refers specifically to the surplus. What's left over after all the bills have been paid? It's the profits. Refers specifically to the surplus. To the return on the investment of all our time and money and energies. That's the meaning of advantage. In the NIV it reads, what do people gain? New Living Translation. What do people get? Eugene Peterson's The Message. What's there to show? What is there to show for a lifetime of work? Advantage, gain, get, show. In other words, what is the return on my investment in this life under the sun? It's a good entrepreneurial question. The second word you may want to underline or highlight in this question is the word work. As you just heard in the ESV translation, it's what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Work. Toil. I believe in the NIV translation, it talks about labors at which they toil. The point is, life in the mist is work. It's hard work. In fact, in our post-Genesis chapter 3 world, life has become increasingly difficult as a result of the consequence of Adam and Eve's original sin, their choice to disobey God. Listen as I read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. To the woman, he, that is God, said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. 
In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. As a result of their sin, a consequence of the sin is that a power struggle has now entered the most intimate relationship on earth between a husband and wife. He continues, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Physical death has now entered the picture. It's an inescapable reality for humanity now. The consequences of Adam and Eve's original sin continue, contains this implication for our toiling, for your toiling and mine. The return on our investments of time, money, and energy will be forever shortchanged. We will not get a result from our work that God had originally intended. Instead, thorns and thistles are now unavoidable realities of life. Just before moving on, you may want to underline or highlight that final phrase in the preacher's question. Under the sun. This unique Hebrew phrase is found 29, 30, maybe 31 times in the book of Ecclesiastes and nowhere else in the Old Testament under the sun. It appears in all 12 chapters but one. Remember, so that's 30 times in 12 chapters. I believe there's only one chapter in the entire book where it doesn't appear. And yet nowhere else in the Old Testament. Additionally, an alternative expression appears three times. Under heaven. Although many of us have appreciated being under the sun the last couple of days, this phrase has nothing to do with the weather. Absolutely nothing. But what it does have to do with, is the preacher is referring to life in a world that we can see, the material world in which we live and work and play. It is a life without any sense or any kind of an eternal perspective. It is just the here and now. One commentator offers this clarification. To see things under the sun, then, is to look at them from ground level. It is to take an earthly point of view 
leaving God out of the picture, at least for the moment. It is life minus God. A life independent of his involvement. It's when we dismiss God in that kind of world, in that kind of world, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What benefit? What gain? Beloved, that is the preacher's leading question that is intended to produce evidence for his leading premise, which we found in verse 2. And that, in my mind, begs another question. What does all our work or toiling under the sun offer? What does it offer? The preacher makes five observations using both nature and history to describe the impact of all our work or toiling in a less than perfect world, full of less than perfect people, surrounded by less than perfect people. Life under the sun, without God, apart from him. Notice verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. How would you describe the preacher's first observation? I think it's like standing in Terminal 1 of Pearson International Airport. What a great place to watch people. It just never ends. It's a mass of humanity coming and going. Thousands of people. Someone has written, in one sense, the world is full of births. In another, it's full of deaths. Coffins and cradles. And yet, according to the end of verse 4, notice, the earth remains forever. Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation paints this picture. One generation goes its way, the next one arrives. But nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. Generation after generation. So with all our work or toiling under the sun comes endless departures and arrivals. Endless departures and arrivals. Notice verses 5 to 7. Also the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises again. That word translated hastening means actually literally is panting. It's running up the stairs, panting. Hastens to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, 
there they flow again. Three illustrations from nature. The sun rises and sets only to rise again. The wind blowing, turning, swirling on a circular course returns. The rivers flowing, flowing, flowing into a sea that is never full. What's a preacher's observation this time? What goes around comes around? It's like going to the Woodstock Fair and watching the merry-go-round. You stand in the same place, that horse returns again and again and again, up and down, round and round. Life under the sun offers an unending repetition. What goes around comes around. Without ever completing a task. Think about it. The sun never finishes. The wind always returns. Those rivers flowing into the sea that never fills up, they never have the opportunity to say, it is finished. It just goes on and on and on and on. It's what life under the sun, our work at life under the sun offers. Have a look at verse 8. If you're not depressed yet, all things are wearisome, exhausting, tiring. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So what does the preacher observe here? Can you summarize it in a short, pithy statement? How about enough is never enough? may want to underline the words not satisfied nor filled. Think about how much TV the average Canadian watches in, say, well, a day. You know what the average is, apparently? Just over three hours a day, 365 days a year. And the eyes never grow tired of watching, taking all this stuff in. And the ears never say, whoa, I'm full of this. Just on and on. Enough is never enough. Verses 9 and 10. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. This is getting exhausting. Let's call it same old, same old. There is nothing new under the sun. Now that's just not true. Right? There's new things 
all those inventions that have taken place through the ages. So Solomon can't be talking about those kinds of things. He's not talking about inventions or things that we can create. So what is he referring to? One commentator puts it this way. Man still struggles with the same essential problems that he's always had. This is the round of work that is weariness to people, similar to the repetitious rounds observable in nature. So the essence of life, all through the years, all through the ages, never changes. I have to admit that Cynthia and I have been in several churches over the 40 years of ministry, which we've pastored churches and been involved in ministry. And the faces have changed. But a lot of the same people are in every church. It's just a different face. People don't change. We are human beings with sinful natures that God is redeeming through the blood of Jesus Christ. The essence of life under the sun never changes. The world is full of love and hate, happiness and tremendous sorrow, joy and grief, greed and generosity. We sign peace agreements and fight multi-generational wars. There is heroic rescues and brutal murders. There are advances and setbacks. That's the life we live in, life under the sun. I grew up in a very political home. And um, my dad and I will continue to engage in conversations about politics because that is a passion of his. We'll talk about politics, the economy, morality, and he will often say tongue-in-cheek, but George, we're getting smarter, and then he'll shake his head and chuckle. He's now 84. In reality, it's the same old, same old world. Sure, we have more inventions, but humanity has not progressed. The fifth observation is presented in verse 11. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. How would you rephrase that observation? How about, there is no lasting legacy. As much as that seems to be a real popular thing right now, even amongst evangelicals, leaving a legacy, there is no lasting legacy. I hate to poke a hole in your balloon. One writer diagnosed our problem. We all suffer from historic amnesia. Eventually, all is forgotten. Remember an illustration where a teacher brought a 
bucket of water up onto the platform. And he stuck his hand in the bucket. And his hand represented our lives. And then he pulled his hand out of the bucket. And there were a few ripples for a few moments. And then the water was completely still. And he said that the hand that entered the water is our lives. And when I pulled my hand out of the water, well, here's Philip Ryken's commentary on this. One day we too will be forgotten. Centuries from now, common experiences of our own time will be among the former things that are mentioned in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. What we have accumulated will be lost. What we have accomplished will be forgotten. Our descendants will not remember us any better than we, re than we remember our ancestors. Eventually, when things that have yet to happen are forgotten, those people will no longer be remembered either. The same memory failure happens at the individual level. We find it hard to remember many things. The experiences of earlier childhood, the math skills learned last year in school, the place where we last saw whatever it is we were looking for. It is hard. It's hard to remember. Someday, soon, most of us will face the memory loss that comes with old age. When our experiences become inaccessible to us, we will still be who we are when we have all but forgotten who we were. Or will every last memory of us be forgotten? This is part of the weariness of life, that there is no remembrance of former things. Beloved, there is no lasting legacy. Endless departures and arrivals. What goes around comes around. Enough is never enough. Same old, same old. There is no lasting legacy. So how are you feeling about all your work under the sun? The advantages, the gains, the profitability of it all, the return on your investment. The preacher, he wants us to feel the full weight of it. He wants us to squirm under the weight of what he's presenting. All for the purpose of delivering a warning. All our work, our toiling under the sun is, how would you finish that statement based on the five observations the preacher has just made? Endless departures and arrival. What goes around must come around. Enough is never enough. Same old, same old. No lasting legacy. Finish the sentence. All our work or toiling under the sun is... Verse 2. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. How can we not agree?
The preacher has provided some compelling evidence in support of his leading premise, stated in verse 2. And let me read the entire verse. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. You turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 127. This is actually part of the Songs, Psalms of, Songs of Ascent collection that begins in Psalm 120 and goes through to Psalm 134. So it's like a, a chorus book that the Israelites would sing these psalms as they made their way up to the city of Jerusalem to in preparation for one of their festivals, religious festivals. Psalm 127 can actually be divided into two parts. It's like a two-act play or, or a two-sided coin. Verses 1 and 2 lay out a contrast. On the one hand you have this, but on the other hand you have something else. It's a contrast, but it doesn't have the B-U-T, but it's a contrast, verses 1 and 2. And verses 3 to 5 present a specific example. What the truth of the contrast is presenting in verses 1 and 2, it's illustrated in verses 3 through 5. So you may want to draw a line between verse 2 and verse 3. Above the line you can write contrast and below the line you can write specific example. But notice verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. It is in vain you rise up early to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. So the first seven lines of this psalm present the first side of the contrast. So it's unbalanced, the contrast. It's not until we get to the very end of verse 2 that the coin is flipped over and we see the other side. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So you could even actually put a slash behind the last phrase, or at the beginning of the last phrase of verse 2. And all the rest of verse 1 and 2 are the other side of the coin. To eat bread, eat, in my Bible it reads, to eat bread of painful labor, slash, that's the end of the contract, and then the other side, for he, that is God, gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. So the psalmist is suggesting that God doesn't need our help in supplying what he wants to give us. But part one, but the part I want to, focus on is that other side of the coin. Unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord watches, in other words, apart from God, 
What you do is vanity of vanities. All is vanities. And not only that, look at the next verse. It is in vain you rise up early, retire late, to eat bread of painful labors. Not only is it apart from God what you do, but how you do it doesn't change anything. It's vanity. All is vanity. And I'll admit, we may end up with a few more blisters on our hands and a longer list of accomplishments on our wall. But in the end, it is vanity of vanities. All is vanities. Then listen to Jesus' words. God dressed in human flesh, remember? They're recorded in Luke chapter 29, verse 23, first of all. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Surrender, sacrifice, and service. That call does not feel comfortable or sound the least bit easy. It's not to a life of leisure. But listen to verse 25. For what is a man profited? In other words, what does a man gain? What is his return on his investment of time, money, or energy? What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's a good question. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, it's a parallel passage. It's translated, forfeits his soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, the whole under the sun existence, gains all of it, and yet exists his own soul, forfeits his own soul? Remember the per- preacher's purpose back in Ecclesiastes? We began with a question, and then came a warning after the question. And now, a gentle push in the right direction. Fear, obey, and trust God. That's what the preacher's conclusion, following his assessment of life under the sun. Life apart from God. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. For this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. You see, life under the sun is not the only way to look at things, or even the right way to look at things. There is a God in heaven who rules over the sun. 
And that makes all the difference in the world. Dr. David Jeremiah states the following about this book of the Bible. You're likely to be startled by this book's starkly modern insights into the human condition. Its message is as contemporary as a postmodern university textbook, a celebrity interview, or even a teenage suicide note. It's like an urgent email, E for Ecclesiastes, written an hour ago. Let me suggest three ways to respond to this gentle push in the right direction. Number one, pray. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 7 to 9 records Agar's prayer. Two things I ask of you. He's talking to God. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. That's his first request. That he be truthful, a man of integrity. And then secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the Lord of my God. God, keep us from anything that would prevent us or draw us away from acknowledging our dependence on you, your involvement in the details of our lives. That needs to be our prayer. And don't forget, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he drifted. He drifted away from his God because he compromised on life. No big deal left him with experiences that he's trying his very best to prevent us from becoming engaged in. Pray. Secondly, abide. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him, he bears much fruit. And here's the phrase, for apart from me, you can do nothing. God has done all that he can do. We need to embrace him. Thirdly, be steadfast and immovable. One of my scripture memory verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil or your labor or your work or your investments of time, money, and energy is not in vain in the Lord. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities, is not the only alternative. Pray, abide, be steadfast, and immovable while you're navigating life in the mist. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you are both transcendent, high and lifted up, holy, 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 and yet imminent, personal, and intimate, involved in the details of each of our lives. It was while we were yet your enemies that you sent Jesus to pay the price, the wages for our sin died a horrible death and was buried, but rose from the dead, displaying power in conquering death and proving that you found his death to be a good and acceptable and perfect payment for our sins. Enable us to respond appropriately, we pray, by first of all acknowledging our depravity, repenting of our sins, and by faith starting to trust Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And then may your spirit who indwells all those who truly believe help us to avoid engagement in activities or with people who will draw us away, turn our hearts away from you. Enable us to make wise investments of our time, money, and energies not looking for returns the world offers, the temporary satisfaction of our insatiable desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, but for the everlasting gains that accompany trusting in Jesus Christ for the free gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.